everyone. I'm Joan Kerr, and this is World Canvas from International Programs. Glad to have you with us for a discussion about women in post-communist Russia and Eastern Europe, taking a close look at whether their aspirations at the fall of the Berlin Wall have materialized over these past 20 years. We're coming to you from the beautiful Senate chamber of the Old Capitol Museum on the campus of the University of Iowa, and I'd like to begin by thanking our partners, UITV, the University of Iowa Pentecost Museums, KRUI-FM, and Information Technology Services. This program is being recorded for statewide television and radio distribution over UITV, Iowa Public Radio, and KRUI-FM. As I alluded to earlier, our topic tonight is East European and Russian women still aspiring to basic rights in the 21st century? Big question mark there. Our discussion comes as the final event of an international conference sponsored by a major projects grant from international programs that has been taking place this week here on the campus of the University of Iowa, 20 years after the Berlin Wall, women shifting roles and status in post-communist Eastern Europe. The organizers of the conference, as well as a number of their speakers, have agreed to share their scholarship and their perspectives with us tonight on World Canvas. Additionally, we will discuss music of two living women composers from Russia, Sofia Kubaidu and Irina Dubkova. The live performance of Dubkova's work will be given by Ensemble Periphery a little later in our program. So let me introduce now the people who are with us here on stage. Uh, we'll get our bearings with an overview of the topic and some historical context. Uh, next to me is Margaret Mills, Professor of Russian Language and Linguistics. Uh, Yitka Sankova is a lecturer in Czech Language and Literature. And at the far end is Irina Kostina, a lecturer in Russian Language and Culture, and they are all in the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences here at the University of Iowa. Joining them are Anna Sharogradskaya, and I hope I've said your name correctly, a media specialist and former professor at Leningrad State University in St. Petersburg, Russia. She's uh, next to Irina. And uh, next to Anna is Hanna Haskova, uh, deputy chair of the Department of Gender and Sociology at the Institute of Sociology, the Academy of Sciences of the Czech Republic in Prague. Welcome, all of our guests, please. So, Peggy, let me turn first to you and ask you to, to help us uh, frame the conversation here. What are we talking about, and what do you investigate when you try to look at the status of women here in the 21st century in this part of the world? If I could answer that in one uh, short statement, I would, but I can't. Uh, we envisioned this conference a little over 18 months ago, my colleagues, co-directors, and I, to really take a deep, hard, and very careful look at the roles of women today in these post-communist countries vis-a-vis uh, -vis the aspirations, the hopes, the dreams, the wishes that I think every woman uh, in each of the countries we, we, we've covered had for themselves, had for their families, had for their, for, for their children in the future. And as any really good, intensive academic conference should, we had more questions than we did answers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I know that you just really wrapped up your conference about a half an hour ago, so. Absolutely. Uh, mm -hmm. Your voice is a little raspy, I know. It's so. very raspy, <laughs> which is a good indication yeah. of, of the uh, wonderful discussions that we had for the past two days. Mm -hmm. Well, I know that as you were getting this all put together, you and Itka and Irina, um, we had a, an early conversation as this was all getting planned, and you talked about the dreamt of and expected changes in the post-communist era and the disappointing reality in many ways, uh, the double burden of work inside the home and outside 
inside the home. Uh, we've also talked about things like the crisis in women's health care. So, um, Yitka, let me turn to you and ask you to, to tell us something about uh, what you think you've, you've learned or the new questions that have arisen as this conference has gone on. Well, that's a very difficult <laughs> and very broad question, yeah. uh, and I don't know if I can answer that in a, in a, on a short in a short time. Well, we were actually exploring women's uh, issues, how they changed uh, after the year 1990, after the fall of communism, because uh, women expected probably something very different from that what developed after that. And it was not just the women's expectation. The whole society, or all societies within these uh, countries went uh, through the process of uh, political, economic, and social transformations. Uh, and all this had the impact on lives of uh, women. So the point of the conference was to do the comparison what if anything was positive before the year 1990 in that whole uh, communist era, and it would be different era for, for Russia, different era for Czechoslovakia, Czech Republic there, and uh, actually what changed after the year 1990. And in comparison of uh, all Central and East European countries and Russia, we learned that there are lots of similarities, but also that there are differences. Mm -hmm. Well, this leads us now to Anna Sharogradskaya, who was one of your, your uh, honored guests to come here from Russia, and so nice to have you with us. And as I mentioned earlier, you have been a professor, you're a media specialist, and, and um, you certainly have studied changes in Russia and Eastern Europe very closely. When, when you look at this period that Yitka was just talking about, the pre-1990 period and what's happened in the last 20 years, what, have, what are some of your top thoughts about the status of women these days? Well, uh, I was actually speaking um, about the situation that our expectations about changes in Russia for both men and women for the better proved to be cheated by those people who rule the country and by us who are quite passive in resisting that political situation. And Russia is the country where the men, uh, where men are the minority. And uh, because they are the minority, women's um, expectations uh, from that ruling minority were also not what uh, uh, were also not what we expected from uh, our power, from our authorities, because they are mostly men. And for that reason, um, the situation in Russia is reverse. It's not the progress, but uh, to some extent, we go back to that situation where women uh, were um, house, uh, wives or homemakers, and uh, many even prefer that. Mm -hmm. So progress that many people hoped would happen would have allowed women to, to um, women would no longer have had this uh, expectation that they had to work full time and then take care of the home full time. The idea in, the, in this period of change in 1990 that many hoped would happen was that 
women would have greater freedom to choose how they would spend. Uh, well, but again, it, um, it is uh, the way you look at things, because if you never had the right not to work, and then you got that right not to work, some might look at that as a positive development, uh, while um, certainly um, there should be some balance when someone forced to yeah. work. Right and prefers not to work. That is one thing. Another thing is when you can choose. But uh, Russia is a semi-totalitarian state now and uh, with all the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. Well, let me go to the person just next to you here, Hanna Askova. You're from uh, Czech Republic. Yes. And uh, Tell us, are there differences in this situation that you're aware of between Russia and uh, what you experience in the Czech Republic? Well, definitely there are some differences. There are some similarities. I think that there were a lot of gains for women as well as men after 1989. But on the other hand, also women were, um, were not satisfied uh, with the development in all um, the spheres of the life. Uh, for example, the 1989 uh, meant, especially for mothers in Czech Republic, that they were completely excluded uh, from the labor market. Of course, for some of these women, it was a choice. As Anna Sharogradskaya said, uh, women's organizations in Czech Republic at the beginning of 1990s actually advocated the choice not to work. Uh, but today we can see that a lot of women actually would like to work, uh, but they cannot return to the labor market because there are no childcare facilities anymore in the country, um, and that's why they are remaining at home. Mm -hmm. And I know that one of the talks you, you uh, presented was on the woman question in post-communist um, Eastern Europe. What is the woman question? The woman's question, um, this phrase, uh, was used uh, during the communist regime. It's also used uh, today, uh, but there is always different meaning in what does it mean. So during the communist regime, uh, it was associated with women's emancipation uh, through their participation in employment. Um, the government promised uh, that um, it will help uh, through childcare services, uh, through household services. As we all know, uh, those promises uh, were not uh, then fulfilled. So women in Eastern Europe um, had a huge double burden, uh, or sometimes um, some people speak about triple burden, because they had to participate uh, in employment. Uh, they had to, they had, uh, they were the sole caregivers in their families, um, and also the services uh, were not available. Um, so they have to do a lot of housework, which we do not have to do today, uh, because um, there are a lot of services. We don't have to sew um, our clothes, but that was the reality during the communist regime, that women uh, have to sew their clothes. Um, there was lack of goods uh, on the labor market. Uh, there was lack of goods uh, in the shops, and women after work, they have to queue uh, for example, for half an hour or one hour, uh, just to get um, uh, bread and uh, milk uh, and other stuff. And then after work, they also have to join 
um, different uh, party meetings or um, Czechoslovak Union, Czechoslovak Women's Union meeting, uh, and so on. So that was the triple burden then. Mm -hmm. Um, well, I'll ask those of you who, who live in the States. Uh, Irina, I'll go to you first. We haven't spoken yet, but um, we're familiar with some of the concerns or complaints that women have about the status of women in the United States, as com you know, uh, considering employment, or um, do husbands and wives in, in a family with children, do they share responsibilities equally and so on? I think this is probably something that goes on in all cultures and continuing discussion mm -hmm. and, and um, question. But, um, as you've heard your colleagues uh, speak here, those from Russia and Eastern Europe, you coming from that back background as well, but living here in the States, what sticks out for you as the, um, uh, the sort of common thread? Is there a common thread between women's concerns in the United States and what you've heard expressed here? No, first of all, I would like to say that we built very interesting course, three of us, Margaret Mills, Yitka Sankova, and me, on life of women. Uh, history and traditions and family and values of women and we would like to see what really happened with them during these 20 last years. Uh, if to say about myself, I was born in Islamic Republic of Dagestan when uh, many different nationalities exist. There is very strict um, order of what women should do at home and what men should do at home. Uh, even with <clears throat> this uh, spirit of Islam, I don't remember that um, women were wearing veils, they were very educated, they could go to uh, universities, they were really um, very often, uh, they had equal rights with men, uh, in Dagestan, it's big difference from other um, uh, parts of Islamic parts of Russia. Uh, and when Perestroika began, Gorbachev promised that we were talking about it, that finally women, Russian women, Dagestani women, they will see light in end of tunnel. Um, First, I was thinking that probably people from, women from uh, Europe, from Czechoslovakia, Czech and Slovakia, uh, and other countries, probably they see this light. Maybe it's just because it's Islamic, uh, small part and very far from center of Russia. But uh, then talking with um, professors, I understood that nothing changed really. If to talk about, again, Islamic, uh, country, Dagestan. I can tell you that women pushed back to home. And uh, men believe that it should be um, complete seclusion women at home. Any, they should be in the kitchen, they should give a birth to kids. And many men uh, liked to use uh, this idea of polygamy. Uh, and they now have two, three, four wives. And like one very interesting woman from Dagestan, she's a psychologist, she was saying that uh, Islamic men, they use Islam when it is convenient for them. Uh, Islam really do, uh, doesn't let you to drink 
or to smoke. They do it. Uh, and when it is about to have extra wife, they do it too. Even we know already from our conference that in Islam it's written, only if you can really support your second wife. And if you can take care of orphan girl that you trying to help being her uh, husband because she doesn't have uh, anybody. Only in this case you can do it. So uh, if uh, I, I didn't live all of my life in there, uh, but uh, it was much more freedom for women 20 years ago than now. Thirdly, even more than 30 nations, and it was a Russian city, Mahachkala, this capital of Dagestan, called before Port Petrovsk, because it was built by Peter the Great. And first people who moved there, they were Russians. Then it was a place when a lot of smart people were sent, like my grandfather, because he was uh, studying in Austria, and he became surgeon, and when war starts, first war, uh, he was captured and he was sent to Dagestan and he never ever could work in capitals, uh, Moscow or St. Petersburg, because they called him spy. So, but uh, anyway, um, we had uh, something that united us. Russians feel they're great. Russian language was language that connected all of these nations. Now almost all of my relatives moved from there. And many women, because it is a dangerous place. It could be a kidnapping, it could be, a, even I, I have not been there maybe 20 years uh, before I every year went. Now my relatives who still there, who married local Islamic people, they say, don't come. If you come, you will be kidnapped. And then your family will pay a lot of money to return you home. Thank you. Let, let me bring uh, both Yitka and, and Peggy into this discussion, too, um, to wrap this in, in a larger context. Thank you for sharing this vision of what your um, country and your community uh, has gone through and, and what you see these days. But um, in this larger area of Eastern Europe and Russia, um, do you have anything in particular you'd like to, to say um, to amplify Irina's comments? I would like to segue into one, one comment related specifically yeah. to our conference, yeah. if that's all right. And that is uh, one of the most um, unanticipated successes that I think we would all agree came out of it was a new vision, a new perspective on women's and men's lives from our second generation. The, the, we sitting here are the generation who came of age uh, during the communist period and visit, I worked and lived in the Soviet Union uh, before 1991, but we had an incredible group of graduate students and undergraduate students from at least eight or nine of these countries who had very different perspectives, very different views, very different educations, and I think generally were much more positive about um, their futures in these countries. Yeah, 
I would say that the common theme which went through all of the panels, all, all the presentations was what is the best way for women or women, if I put it in singular, to accommodate all her roles and aspirations in life, how to put together care of children, family, household, and her professional uh, aspirations so that she would be contributing member to the society. What is the best mix? And are there conditions within those particular countries which governments, societies, public pressure can create so this would work the best, not only for women, but also mm -hmm. for men and on the first place for our children. Right. Well, I'd like to refer for just a moment to a piece that Peggy wrote for the uh, Press Citizen um, prior to the conference and then also this program, where you talked about the the um, early goals after the Bolshevik Revolution. Um, tell us a little bit about uh, the freedoms that it appeared that women would, would have uh, thanks to the revolution. Uh, to put it very briefly, we talked about this a lot and on almost every panel, um, the Bolshevik vision was uh, guaranteed that women had equal rights in every sphere of society, in the public sector and the private sector. Um, as things evolved, somehow um, the private sector was sort of forgotten and women were forced to work in the outside the home 100% and inside the home 100%. And so I think many people discussed the um, enthusiasm that people had after 8991 that perhaps new, tr a new emerging democracies would bring more choices for women in the home, in the workplace, in helping build civil society. And in fact, those are the disappointments that we, that we came up with. So we, we talked a lot about what theory is and how theory has or has not been applied in the practice of everyday lives today mm -hmm. in, in this part of the world. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, in a moment, we're going to make a little bit of a change in our uh, guests who are on stage here. But I, I did want to ask you, Peggy, there are some wonderful things that have happened in the last couple of years thanks to your hard work and your colleagues in the uh, Department of uh, well, Russian and Slavic Russian languages. Program and Slavic languages so, and literature. Yeah, yeah. So yes. talk a little bit about the opportunities students here have uh, to go to Russia and to do really significant uh, work there. We've been real fortunate the last three years to be recipients of some federal grants that have been earmarked specifically to train our students to achieve advanced levels of Russian language by having uh, the opportunity to travel and take intensive Russian seminars for a month in our partner institution in Moscow. And this is Department of Education, and um, without their support and assistance, uh, these 22 students in the combined last three years would simply not have had this opportunity. So we feel very, very fortunate, and our students have, um, those who have been to Russia with us have gone on to do great things, and our last group will be going this June on a Fulbright-Hayes uh, trip with Professor Koshin and I, 12 students. Wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. 
Well, well, so this just gives us a little bit of a start, but as I said, we're going to switch out. Uh, Yitka, we'll let you go for the moment, and Irina as well. Thank you for joining us. And uh, Jonathan uh, Larson, if you would please come up and, oh, you please stay. Uh, sure. So Jonathan Larson, and if uh, Lorraine Ross would also come up and take a seat. We'll talk a little bit now more specifically about women and gender in the public and private spheres. Um, Jonathan Larson, who's just getting himself seated there, is an assistant professor of anthropology at the University of Iowa, who's done field work uh, in the Czech Republic and in Slovakia. And uh, Lorraine Ross uh, works in art and education, um, but I will ask you to, to tell us more specifically what you do. Lorraine Ross, um, where are you working now? Well, you could consider me more as an independent scholar right yes. at the moment. Mm -hmm. And one of my main areas is Dagestan as a speciality. Uh, and Dagestan is the, the uh, republic or the area that Irina was just referring to. Yeah. Yes, it is. Yes, great. Thank you. And uh, Jonathan, welcome. You're you. one of the few guys on this panel tonight. We've got a lot of women, <laughs> and thank you for joining us. So, um, yeah, so, so what is your fieldwork um, involved in Czech Republic and in Slovakia? Uh, I've spent time looking at both um, the uh, both how uh, social and public criticism is learned and practiced. So I've done uh, research in both um, uh, high schools, university settings, and also uh, looked fairly closely at um, uh, the public sphere and uh, uh, places of debate in the media. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, let's get this conversation um, going again about women and gender and. Um, Hannah, I guess maybe I'll just start with you. What, what, are, what are the active stereotypes about women and women's roles and um, you know, proper place in society and all of that? What are the, the active stereotypes now in this part of the world? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> well, definitely uh, there is the stereotype that um, children should be raised, especially by mothers. Mm, and also grandmothers can help with childbearing. Uh, Fathers are not really included in the picture. Um, so then, uh, also in the reality, uh, those are especially mothers who are caring for children. Only 1% of fathers, um, mm, there's only 1% of fathers uh, out of the total population who is on the parental leave. So even though uh, after 1989, the parental leave was open uh, to men as well as women, only 1% of men uh, really uh, take the opportunity. So those are mothers, together with their mothers, uh, who are caring uh, for children. In this um, uh, picture is also the fact that feminism is perceived to be a dirty word um, in Czech society. And it is interesting that uh, during the 1990s, feminism was connected uh, to communism uh, because um, it was said that during the communism, uh, women um, were supposed to be emancipated through their um, <clears throat> participation in employment and it was connected uh, to feminism. But uh, during communism, feminism was actually uh, connected was also denigrated because it was connected to the Western ideology. So even uh, so, during the communism as well as after uh, the communist regime, feminism was always denigrated, but for different reasons. <laughs> Tell us uh, more about that, Anna. Uh, um, Anna Sharukatskaya. Well, I was thinking when I was listening to Hannah that 
it can be perceived as a stereotype that a woman should take care of children and everything. But in Russia, all our laws uh, about children and who should take care of them in, in case there is conflict in the family, uh, women have preference, and uh, that preference is to the extent when a husband, um, um, that is a man, can really be a better parent for those children because their mothers, and it is a problem, mother got drunk too often and doesn't take proper care of them very often in the court. Um, uh, the conflict is um, in favor, um, uh, the verdict is in favor of a woman, but not of a man. So that kind of stereotyping that only mothers can take care, care of children, well, when we uh, think in terms of the legal system, uh, it becomes uh, sometimes uh, just um, uh, not good, but evil. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> uh, there, I think there is a, a belief here in the United States by many of us that, that the um, sort of the social support within um, Eastern European countries and perhaps even Russia um, for raising young children, uh, time at home after giving birth and so on while still receiving one's salary. Um, perhaps people like myself are operating with misinformation, but I think that um, many people believe that um, a woman and a young family actually receive better support in Eastern Europe than would be the, the case here in the States. Jonathan, you're kind of um, nodding a little. Is that, is that a mistaken uh, belief on my part? No, it's very true. Or Things are, of course, um, constantly changing as governments there need to, um, as they implement different reforms responding to different economic conditions. But uh, for um, most of the post-communist period up until the present in the former Czechoslovakia, my knowledge here is more particularly about uh, Slovakia, um, women can have uh, up to three years, I think it is, on at least a partial salary after having a child. And in addition to that, until recently, and this might also have um, been a recent reform, but uh, women were allowed to retire at an earlier age <clears throat> um, according to the number of children that they had had. And, um, you know, so the, these were two uh, government policies that were directly supporting uh, uh, mm -hmm. families having children, but particularly mothers. I don't think that there was um, the same kind of policy for fathers mm -hmm. to take that, uh, that time off from work. But, uh, Anna, I'll just direct this question to you. I think that I heard um, someone say in one of your panels yesterday that, and I'm, she's going to join us later on, I think it was Marketa Sankova, who said that um, one might wonder whether this is actually a good thing or, uh, in, in a way, um, has, has a negative effect on the woman's career when she does after raising one or two children for those first couple of years. Yes, that person can go back into the workplace, but has sort of lost her standing within the workplace by being gone for so long. Um, anyone here have any response to that? Uh, I do know that legally um, that, that three-year uh, clause or two years, whatever it's been, is an amount of time that an employer is required to hold open 
the possibility mm -hmm. that the woman would return to the position. So yeah. um, whoever has been holding it temporarily would then um, have to leave to accommodate that person coming mm -hmm. back, mm -hmm. that woman coming back. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, I think it's very good to have a parent leave because it gives you security and you can really choose to stay at home. But, uh, but uh, in order to have the choice, you have to have the parent leave but also the childcare facilities. So you can really make a choice if you would like to stay at home and have some support from the government or if you would like to go back um, and use the childcare facilities. The situation in Czech Republic but also in Poland and Hungary and Slovakia today is that the childcare facilities disappeared. So you actually do not have the choice because you can stay at home for three years and in Czech Republic even for four years and you are paid by the government for being at home, mm, but you don't have the choice uh, to go back uh, to your employment because there is simply no childcare facility for such small uh, children, so you don't have the choice. And another thing is that there are different kinds of parental leave. Uh, for example, in Scandinavia, they have uh, parental leaves that give you a percentage, a high percentage of your previous salary. So if you stay at home, you're really independent because you have quite a nice salary. But um, in Czech Republic, also in Slovakia, Poland, you do not actually receive a percentage of your previous salary, but you're on a low social income, um, which is flat rate. Uh, it is the same uh, for everybody. So it means that if you are staying at home, um, you're not so much independent because it is not a good salary. Um, you have some small uh, amount of money that is additional uh, to the salary of your husband. So if you would like, would like to uh, go away, for example, divorce, then you're in a trouble because you're on um, a low um, flat, flat rate income. Mm -hmm. And again, there are private enterprises and they do not make the life of those women who give birth to children secure because they might re-register or cease to exist and anything. And then what used to be a good salary and good funding for the child, well, she's considered to be just on her maternity leave. Um, uh, it may disappear overnight when something happened to that enterprise, and it often happens when people are not honest and they don't want those mothers to continue working for them. There are many tricks that they are using, and there is a special women's group, their lawyers, who help such women in trouble in Russia. I know them personally, and uh, they are never without work. Peggy, uh, you, you have witnessed these discussions here in this country, and, and you know uh, what we've just been talking about here. Um, I could imagine someone watching this program and thinking, my goodness, people are complaining when they don't get their full salary, but they still have the right to go yeah. back to a job. Uh, in, in most places that I'm aware of in America, this has not been the understanding. Sometimes you can't go back into the same career you were in before, and a job is usually held for a number of weeks. You can arrange a period of maternity leave. But I could imagine people thinking, well, it's too bad that they don't have what they want, but we've never had that. 
That's a, that's a wonderful observation, Joan. I think most, most Westerners, myself included, before I started working and traveling uh, in these countries, thought that, that these uh, maternal leaves for one to three years were simply magical. My goodness, how could, how could someone uh, even dream of it? My most American friends of mine have six weeks maternity leave um, after, after delivering their child or adopting a child. Uh, but the, what we learned at this conference was the, the, the realities, what Hannah was just talking about. These are very low fixed incomes and the incentives to return to work are really quite high, which is something that Marquetta talked about and we'll uh, discuss later, that young professionals are very, very hesitant in these post-communist European countries um, to start their families at an earlier age, the way our generation did, because they want to make sure that their careers are well established and that if they have leadership aspirations in their uh, in their businesses or places of employment, that those aspirations are really going to be cut short should, when you choose to take that first year or two years or three years because returning to the workplace is much more complicated than I think it sounds in theory. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, somewhat related to that, uh, a topic that was really deeply explored was the fact that in those countries that have um, join the European Union, such as Czech Republic, they are bound to the laws and legislation of the European Union. For, and so when someone, a young woman in her early 20s goes in for a job interview, uh, the employer is not allowed to ask what their marital status is, what their plans are, um, do they want children? Uh, and in those countries, post-communist countries that have not yet joined the European Union, discrimination of young women in employment is simply uh, hard to comprehend for a Westerner. Uh, potential employers may ask anything at all about a woman uh, who is interviewing for their job. Mm -hmm. So it, it, it sounds wonderful in yeah. theory, and, yeah. and I, uh, but the realities of, of staying at home and the, we saw some wonderful data that Marquetta brought yesterday that after the age of 30, women kind of disappeared from a lot of the career trajectories, and it's for this very reason. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, let's, let's talk a little bit with you, Lorraine. You're, you're getting ready to say I something. I think one of the important things that came up in the conference uh, amongst a number of us is the realization of the great differences between rural and urban situations, and I, and I think that's very important to consider when we sometimes get to talking in these generalities. Um, when I look at Dagestan and what is happening there, and I showed slides that were approximately taken 100 years apart, and uh, some differences, yes, but a lot of similarities. And I think in the rural situations, sometimes we have to realize how slowly change occurs. Mm -hmm. uh, now in Dagestan, it has a very unique situation. Um, of course, it's a traditionally an Islamic influenced society. And now we have an extreme form of Islam which has come in and although the extreme form has been uh, outlawed officially, 
it is it has essentially gone underground and uh, what happens to women who would have normally uh, uh, continued on the cultures well they're making choices first of all I have to I think I I, I have to make uh, people understand that but some women get into positions where they are uh, even more in the home than before, given extreme uh, religious trends. Mm -hmm. Whereas, I also have to point out, some are making the choice to go out and find work in other areas. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Help me figure out where Dagestan is within the, the large mass of land. Um, Okay, um, in the Caucasus, uh, there, these individual groups are very separated from each other. And so uh, women are in small villages, okay? Yes, and yes. you can have, a village uh, is made up of an ethno-linguistic right. group, right. okay? A clan, uh, several clans together could make a village. And, <clears throat> They, when I first went there, it was like going back 100 years. And, and so uh, you see women doing a lot of very, very traditional work. Um, although they do know what's going on. They're very aware. They have the television, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So there's, there are these contradictions. And so with, with the breakup, some availed themselves of opportunities if they could, mm -hmm. okay? And some uh, women fell under more restrictive circumstances. But for example, throughout this whole area we're talking about, women have the same right to education, at least up to a, a certain age as men do. Is that, is that accurate? You know, education has become uh, very pricey because now people must pay for education. And so women there, uh, often the choice is not to educate the women in the, fa the females in the family so much as the males in the family. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. uneven opportunities, shall we say. Yeah. Down here at the, at the uh, end of the um, table, or uh, the stage. Can you tell me something about the rural and uh, and urban contrast in the in the areas you're most familiar with? Say in a city like uh, Moscow or or St. Petersburg or in uh, Prague. Asking me? Yes, yes. Well, before I answer your question, I wanted to add something about the Caucasus and what Irina Kostina was talking about. That there are voices even of liberal leaders there that there should be um, several wives um, in a family and they explained that to me is an absolute necessity because because of these wars eternal war like um, um, uh, about 20 years uh, there are wars uh, um, uh, which are declared to be anti-terrorist 
um, operations, um, uh, men um, um, disappeared from families, and I'm not talking only about husbands and uh, opportunities to get married. I'm talking about fathers and brothers, those who usually, according to their traditions, protect women, uh, protect uh, physically from any danger, and take care of them. And for that reason, uh, we, a woman should be in some surrounding that, uh, where there is at least one male. It, it is their view of how things should develop. And um, um, uh, I remember that Ruslan Aushev, who, who was the president of Ingushetia, he raised that uh, question in the State Duma of permitting um, uh, to have um, at least two or three wives if possible. And uh, that was uh, the act of mercy, I think. And I also want to connect with this um, evil war in the Caucasus, um, my answer to your next question, because uh, there is mobility, and mobility is a good word when you want to move places, you go there and you achieve what you want to achieve. But when you are forced to leave this spot because there is a war go going on, and you move and you leave everything, and you are penniless, and you come to some other part of the country, and your status legally is not that of a migrant, which means that the state doesn't provide you with anything because you had to um, escape from uh, this disaster, uh, then mobility can be uh, viewed as a, a, another disaster. So on one hand, it is very good that young people can go to other countries, uh, can go to bigger towns, uh, that um, uh, people from villages can move to town if they want to, because there was a period of time, and I remember that, when they were forbidden to do that. but. Our villages disappear because there are not um, no younger people, and uh, again there should be some policy, whether it would be NGOs on the or the state or something, to really have uh, the country where there is agricultural and rural places, and not only for recreation uh, when you have um, a dacha in that rural place and a house in, uh, in the city, but also for developing agricultural products and uh, things like that. And um, uh, that mobility, um, as a word, uh, should be also analyzed from the point of view why people move right. and why people go somewhere else, even to study, because our uh, uh, education also deteriorated during the last 20 years. And we were proud of our education. We were happy that we produced very good scholars, very good scientists, very good um, 
professionals in the field. And uh, now very many parents send their children abroad and they, they themselves strive to go abroad because the, the education is not what it used to be. Right, right. Jonathan, when you were doing your research in the schools in uh, Czech Republic or Slovakia, um, did you encounter kids like this or families like this who were planning to, uh, to leave and find more opportunity elsewhere? Uh, not so much in the parts of uh, Slovakia and the Czech Republic where I've spent time, but I was not in such rural areas where I do mm -hmm. think that is the case. And you do see uh, particularly, uh, you, you can see different oh. patterns to both uh, men often going away for, for uh, physical labor in other places, but also perhaps more women being inclined to go away for educational opportunities than, than men. Um, I was thinking and following on the previous comments and thinking about um, urban and rural areas, similarities and differences, that um, one uh, pattern that I think you see um, in education that cuts across both uh, rural and urban areas is a certain um, uh, value, certain ideas of what's valuable public work and what's, uh, what's less valuable public work. And so in the area of education, you do see uh, a real feminization of uh, the profession. Uh, many more, and, and this is of course, I, I think been a uh, pattern in the United States as well, but it's been very dramatic in uh, uh, Martin, for instance, the city of 60,000 where I've spent a lot of time, um, where men don't stay in teaching because they just feel like it doesn't pay the kind of salary that a man's salary should earn. And you see this also happening in um, universities in the, in the cities where uh, it's becoming increasingly an area, it's, it's probably in part, you know, it's a good thing if more women are entering it, but it seems like it's partly uh, uh, men leaving it and uh, maybe believing themselves that they need to have a job that's more befitting a man as far as the pay, or perhaps in subtle ways, women sometimes expecting that a man should be working somewhere else where he's earning more money. Hmm. This is such an interesting discussion. Thank you all so much. I, I think we'll move now to our uh, panel on young professionals in this area, but thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. As our next guests come up, uh, I'll just uh, remind you that you're listening to World Canvas, and this is a program uh, presented and prepared by international programs. We want to say thank you to our partners at UITV, uh, also our local UI radio station, KRUI-FM, and uh, Iowa Public Radio will be broadcasting parts of this program, and you can find it online at the Public Radio Exchange uh, in future days. Um, we're now going to talk about women's voices and women's lives, and uh, I think we have two more guests who are going to join us as well. We will have Maria Alm, Alicia Baruta Sadkowski, Rosie Johnston, and Marketa Sankova here with us. So thank you all for coming in. You are Marketa and Rosie, and Maria and um, uh, Alicia. <laughs> yeah, so thank you for joining us. And uh, interesting conversations so far, huh? And so now we're going to be talking uh, in a segment called Women's Voices, Women's Lives, and, and really hear some personal experiences from uh, people of that second generation that Peggy was talking about earlier, uh, who have, uh, in many cases, in your case, you were born in, in uh, Czech Republic and uh, grew up here and then went back for some time. Uh, now you're getting your PhD at Boston University, I guess. Yes, that's correct. Yes, yeah, so this is Marketa Sankova. Uh, tell us a little bit about your own experience in Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as you mentioned, I'm of Czech origin, but um, we moved here when I was young, and I have done all my schools uh, in Iowa City. Um, I did my bachelor's degree as well as my MBA um, here at Tippi. And after I received my MBA, I went to Prague, where I worked um, for two separate companies. Both were in financial services. And uh, it was very interesting. I worked in financial analysis um, as a research, um, research analyst. And I was in a very um, male uh, place. Um, it was a department of 13 people, and I was the only woman, um, which did, there weren't um, problems. I expected f perhaps um, for there to be some friction, but um, it was a very positive experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, as you saw, other women not working perhaps right in your department, but elsewhere. Did you feel that women of your age with your kind of um, education and experience would have good futures uh, in that country? I believe so, but there is an aspect of them having um, internal drive and motivation to achieve um, leadership positions. Uh, I believe that the society isn't set up in such a way as to let the women go forward without a fight. The women have to want it themselves and make their own way. Mm -hmm. So I do not believe that it is impossible by any means. Um, as we learned during the conference, there are women in leadership positions, um, but it takes a bit of extra effort. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were, we've mentioned you already a couple times in this program with the, the um, observation that perhaps the time away from, from work to have a child or two uh, might be a deficit as you, as you try to reemerge in the workplace. And so some young women are just deciding to wait and, and have their children later. Um, can you flesh that out a little more for us? Of course. Um, we looked at some data as to where women actually are uh, positioned in companies. We didn't just look at where they are in leadership positions, but where they are within um, the companies themselves. Uh, so not only did we see that there are some female-oriented departments, um, such as more administrative processing departments, and that there are male departments, such as IT, uh, but in those female departments, there is kind of a gap. Uh, there are women who are between 20 and 30 years old. There's a lot of those. And then we see women who are between 45 and 60. But I noticed that that gap in the middle is underrepresented, and it seems that um, it is because of the reasons that we heard earlier by Hanna Hashkova that the institutional support does not exist to allow them to be in both places at once. Um, when they choose to have children, they have to exit the labor market. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's move down the line a little bit. Thank you, Marquetta, and talk to Rosie Johnston. And I guess you have you have lived in Prague for some time, and yeah, I uh, lived there for two and a half years prior to coming to Iowa, to Cedar Rapids, Iowa, mm -hmm. um, and I worked there for Czech Radio, Czechy Rozhlas, um, for their international broadcast section. And um, I think somewhat um, unlike the experience that Marquetta had, it was actually a very kind of uh, gender equal environment, um, around about 50% females, 50% males. I think for the reason that, you know, you're very often, you need females to dub female voices and males to dub male voices. And so just for a sort of very practical reason, at least um, on the floor, um, it was really 50-50. In top management, I don't think that was quite the case. I think there were less um, female heads of stations and what have you. But there, there were, I mean, there were women in the upper echelons of management there too.
Mm -hmm. And did you have the sense with your friends, the women who worked there at the radio station, that they, were they talking about delaying getting married or beginning their families, or was that just not part of the conversation? Um, no, I don't think that they, uh, at least my friends, I mean, we're really talking anecdotally here. Um, I think that the main problems my friends were having were with their boyfriends not wanting them to have <laughs> kids yet, rather than um, them sort of worrying about their careers. Um, but I did want to add, you know, when we've been talking about sort of taking into account your career when you are having children, I think regardless of whether you are taking um, your career into account, there has been discussion of a very big gender pay gap in a lot of these countries, but particularly the Czech Republic. I think there was a study in 2009 that found the Czech Republic sort of second worst after Japan for the gender pay gap. And I think regardless of when you yourself are planning on having your children, there are a lot of women in the workplace probably um, maybe suffering from sort of ingrained institutional sort of uh, ideas about what women should earn. Right. Well, if I remember a few weeks ago seeing a recent uh, figure that was used in this country, someone can correct me if I'm mistaken, something like 79 cents to the dollar is, is the pay gap here between women and men in the United States. That really hasn't changed in the last, I don't know, couple of decades. Um, uh, both of you, Alicia and Maria, um, teach at UNI, as I understand it. Yeah. And um, tell us something about your experience with these countries. It's a very broad question, I know, so I'm but, not quite sure. But I don't know your specialties, so. But um, yes, I teach Russian language and literature at the University of Northern Iowa, but I am of Czech background, and so I can speak both about uh, issues from Czechoslovakia, because being of an older generation, I think one of the things to reiterate that came out of the conference was that there are very different perspectives, generational perspectives, between those of us who grew up during the period of the Soviet Union and those who came of age after the collapse of yeah. the Soviet Union, because we have very different experiences. And I think one of our conclusions was, we really almost, I know the conference was 20 years after is the title of the conference, but we cannot really make comparisons because the societies are so radically different that it's difficult for generations in some respects even to talk to each mm -hmm. other. So I think that was one uh, conclusion we reached. And we also talked a little bit in general about um, impediments uh, for women today versus 20 years ago. And 20 years ago, many of the impediments uh, in work and society were ideological. The society was very different, whereas today they're largely economic. So the question you asked, uh, your first set of panelists, um, about our women's concerns are similar in the United States and in Eastern and Central Europe, and yes, of course, they're the very same and similar concerns. Yeah, yeah, thank you. And Alicia, sure, yeah. Sure, I can add something to it. I liked your question that you uh, asked one of the previous guests, if I may say that. Uh, you, use, you use the nice word thread. Is there a thread that common thread? Um, maybe we can even call it psychological thread. <laughs> Absolutely. So if you don't mind, I'll use this word. And I think, yes, this thread weaves through all cultures, in fact, and the United States as well. Um, some people may disagree, some may agree, but when it comes to um, gender uh, issues, women, men, uh, as I said, some, some may disagree with me, but uh, using, I'm quoting a Polish writer, uh, men are the cake and women are raisins. <laughs> <laughs> men are the and cake and women are raisins. Yes. Okay. <laughs> um, so after the fall of communism, if I may kind of clarify my statement, uh, we were pushed back in a way into the roles we wanted maybe to change. 
And moreover, we were pushed back into those traditional roles even deeper than before. Mm -hmm. So those cakes are more visible. There are lots of raisins. <laughs> they are visible too, but... Right. So I think the, this thread is there. That is, it connects all cultures mm -hmm. and the United States as well. Yes. But if I may compare Poland with the United States or the other way around, definitely United States way ahead of the game. Mm -hmm. We'll catch up someday, mm -hmm. <laughs> hopefully. You know, um, uh, people here who are familiar with American electoral politics will recognize um, a question that comes up every time someone runs for office. And the question is, are you better off now than you were four years ago? If I were to ask the question, are women in the countries you know best better off now than they were in 1989, what would your judgment be? Uh, if I understand you correctly, are, um, are women in Poland better off mm -hmm. than, than now? That uh, is the other way around, right? Yeah, yeah. if you look before the Berlin Wall fell, before all the changes of the last 20 years, was the status of women, would you say, better then or better now? Oh, it's a broad question, and I don't think we can answer it in one qu uh, a sentence. We have to look at women, um, where they come from, the regions of Poland, if I speak of Poland, their level of education, status, mm -hmm. wealth, even. Right. All sorts of things, I think, pr play a, a role here. So we cannot give one precise answer. Mm. Generally speaking, uh, when it comes to older women, I have to think about it. Um, the social system, so that is, uh, yes, that needs a lot of work in Poland. Older women do get some help, but not as much as they uh, wish they could. The health system is still questionable. Um, when it comes to young people, uh, young educated women with their master's degrees, even doctorate degrees, leave Poland very often. Uh, I wouldn't make a mistake by using 40% or so, mm -hmm. because uh, mainly to um, European Union countries, um, not maybe as much to the states as they used to. So it's really hard. I cannot answer yes, they are better yes. off <laughs> or no, because mm -hmm. it's a complicated issue and there is a still a long way to go before, I don't know, we come right. to one concrete answer if there is such thing. Thank you. So I don't know if I answered And, and I see that, Maria, you have I'm, something I'm you'd like to because, add. I'm nodding because, you know, we've, this is what, what I began my comments by saying is that we concluded you really can't answer that question mm -hmm. because the answer is better for some women and worse for others. And also yeah. we talked about minority status. There are many other issues, many shades of gray, and the issues are very complex. So mm -hmm. better for some, worse for others. Mm -hmm. But maybe I would just add uh, something that I think is quite fundamental and quite important, which is, of course, it's a case-by-case -case basis. But what certainly shouldn't be forgotten in this discussion is, for example, if you are a young Polish professional or a young Czech professional now as a member of the EU, you can leave. You can go to Britain and pursue your career, mm -hmm. pursue your education. I mean, prior to 1989, certainly, if you overstayed a sort of visa in a Western country, you could even get a prison sentence for that. I mean, nowadays, mobility, I think, certainly speaking about the Czech Republic, Slovakia, Poland, because of the EU, is just much easier, and that is much better. Mm -hmm. Well, and then lifestyle, just general lifestyle. Let's, let's just focus for a moment on the younger generation, uh, women in their 30s and, and younger. Um, 
what, the, what is common in what you observed with young Czech women and young American women at that age? Is, are the lifestyle aspirations very much the same? Um, I believe so. The one thing that I think um, Czech women definitely and maybe others from what we heard in the conference have to grapple with is that if they do have high career aspirations, um, they must be strong enough to deal with the pushback that comes from society. Um, unfortunately, the term career woman in the Czech Republic has a negative connotation. Um, in the United States, I think it has a largely positive con connotation, but um, in the Eastern European countries, people believe that women who are career oriented are selfish and they are out um, to make themselves happy. And so when people make the lifestyle choice um, to be career oriented, they have to have, women I mean, have to have a thicker skin uh, <laughs> and make sure that they are ready to deal with um, the unfortunate current view of their choice. Mm -hmm. Is that what you observed as well, Rosie? Um, I, I would say that everything which Marquetta said I yeah. wholeheartedly agree with and yeah. I don't have a great deal yeah. to add, <laughs> yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, any further thoughts from, from you, Maria, and Alicia? I think my, my final thoughts, uh, something I'd like to add is we talked a little bit about the great difference between urban and rural women, but we also noted that there are great differences across the former uh, Central East European countries because the Czech Republic is very different from Russia. So you re it's really difficult to discuss these issues as kind of as the area as a, as a monolithic area because it's extremely different. We were talking about Islam earlier right. and we haven't even touched upon the topic of Russian Orthodoxy or right. Catholicism. Right. So it's a very right. broad topic. Right. Right, and unfortunately, um, we'll have an opportunity to hear uh, something in just a few minutes by a very famous Russian composer, Sofia Gubaidolina, and I know that she's an Orthodox, um, uh, and she's of the Orthodox faith, and um, we'll hear a little bit about the criticism she's had to withstand over these years. But um, in terms of Poland, anything you can tell us? I've been to your to the to the home country here, and it is such a beautiful and wonderful place. And um, um, you know, how long have you lived in the States? Long time do I have to answer? <laughs> <laughs> no, you don't have to say. <laughs> just kidding. Of course, yeah. I'll answer. answer uh, I've been here 25 years, and in fact, I just turned 50 a week ago. Oh. I like to emphasize that. Yeah. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> no, what I want, if I may, um, uh, if you don't mind, if I have a minute to say, um, what I'd like to do personally, and I, what I'm trying to do is to preserve all the traditions I've learned from my grandmother, from my mother, and from the stories of my grandmother about her mother and grandmother. Yeah. It, because with all the generation, all these beautiful things are dying that are being, should be passed on from one generation to another. And mm -hmm. I emphasize that when I ask my students to read Abramov's, that's a, a writer, Russian writer, Wooden Horses a story about all sorts of artifacts yeah. and I tell them how important it is to preserve what all the generation women cherish, yeah. have, yeah. know, because once they are gone, those traditions will be gone. Absolutely. Well, gosh, thank you all so much, Alicia and Maria and Rosie and Marquetta. Thank you very much for joining us. <laughs> yes.
So now you're in for a treat. We're going to hear a live performance of music of a living woman Russian composer, Irina Dubkova. And joining me here on stage is Joseph Dangerfield. Hey, Joe, thank you. Hi. And we have uh, performers who will be coming up in a moment, and Joe will introduce them, but I'll just give you the names now. Michelle Crouch and Laura Weeby. Did she say Weeby? Uh-huh. Uh, will be the sopranos, and the pianist is Anne Duhamel, and uh, they make up the ensemble periphery, which uh, Joseph directs. So, uh, Joe, you are assistant professor of music composition in theory and director of orchestral um, activities at Coe College. You've been a Fulbright scholar in Moscow just very recently, won all kinds of awards as a young composer, <laughs> and uh, really lovely to have you here. Thank you. So um, tell us about this experience you had going to the Moscow Conservatory and meeting Irina Dubkova. Well, I've actually known Irina for about nine years. Uh, I met her when I was a student at the University of Iowa. Um, David Gomper, I was the RA for the Center for New Music. We performed one of her works. And, and so I, I've been going to Moscow since 2002, and we've developed sort of a, a friendship over the years. And um, while I was there last year, I was able to work, work with her a little more closely. We saw each other weekly basis, if not more often. And you know, her music is, is just its absolutely beautiful. It's, it's very unique. It's very touching, as, as you'll hear from the, the songs momentarily. Yeah, those of us who were here a little earlier and, and heard the rehearsal, just fabulous and, and really amazing. But um, tell us a little bit about what her life is like as a professor there at the conservatory. And, and Yeah, sure. And, yeah. yeah, I mean, she's originally from Moscow, I believe. She started studying when she was five and graduated from the conservatory in the 80s and did postgraduate work there. And then she eventually started working on the faculty in the composition area. Um, to my knowledge, she's the only female composer on the staff, and they have a very large composition program there. Really? Yeah, I think I, I've met at least four, if not five, other professors in the department while I was there. So she, she not only teaches composition, but she works down the hall in the international office. So it's almost like she's working two jobs at yeah. the conservatory. Yeah. It's very, very difficult, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine. And I, I know that she was going to try to watch our live web stream. So right. hello to you, Irina, <laughs> if you are there. Uh, should we talk a little bit about the pieces that will be performed here? Uh, yes, absolutely. Um, there, there are two songs written for soprano, mezzo-soprano, and piano. and. Um, their poetry is by Fyodor Tyutyev, who's a Russian uh, poet who lived uh, in France and Germany for a while. And so the, the poems are actually in French. Mm. Um, the first is, is called Le Martin, and it's named after the French poet. Yes. Um, and it's about the conjunction of music and language and thought as it sort of floats through the air. And, and you can sort of hear this in this mel the mellifluous melody that, that goes between the two sopranos. Mm -hmm. uh, the second is called De ces Frémas, which literally means from these frosts, and then it carries on to from these deserts. And you can sort of, you know, almost hear the, in the lines as they're carried between the sopranos as they sort of just blow across the tundras of, of, of Russia and the great steppes. Um, in fact, you know, you, one of the lines is sort of you hear the wind blowing and a greeting to her daughter. And it's sort of ambiguous as to who her is. Is it the speakers or is it someone else? Mm -hmm. But it's, it's, again, really beautiful poetry. Mm -hmm. And uh, knowing what you know about Russian music, Russian tradition, uh, what are the things we should be listening for here? Oh gosh. Um, well, <laughs> it's just the, the confluence of, of the voices, the soprano lines as they interact with the piano and the piano sort of provides this really lush harmonic framework for these melodies to flow in and out of them. Mm -hmm. and, and I think that's something that's, that's very akin to Russian music is they have this amazing ability to, to draw a melody out of very tiny details and to relate it to, e to each section of the piece and each, each component of the composition. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, if, if you're ready, we'd love to have you perform. So Michelle Crouch, soprano, Laura Wiebe, soprano, and Anne Duhamel, uh, piano.
Thank you very much. Uh, Laura Wiebe, soprano, Michelle Crouch, soprano, and Anne Duhamel. Uh, beautiful. And, uh, you know, there's such a long tradition of the use of voices in some of the most important music uh, coming out of Russia. Uh, you've composed music since your time there. Do you use voices as well in the pieces that you work on? Oh, I do. Um, I, I write primarily for instruments, but um, I'm, I'm working on a song cycle now for two singers, narrator and, and piano, mm -hmm. actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so after your Fulbright, what are the most uh, resonant uh, images from your time there in Moscow? Boy, um, how to pick a couple. I mean, it's just it's the, 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 the warmth of the people that, that I met while I was there and that I worked with. It's just, it's incredible. Mm -hmm. and, and I think the, the most important thing that I, I learned from this experience was that it's very easy for us, you know, we see the news, we see what's going on in the world, for us to assume that the people of the country are what the government, you know, their sort of imprint is, just as them with us. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's very important, I think, for all of us to realize that we, we don't necessarily agree with that, we're not necessarily like that, we're people just like their people. And, and I think we, were, we all, I made so many friends when I was living there. In fact, I'm teaching a course there at the end of May at another institution in Moscow, and, and it's because of these friendships that I made while mm -hmm. I was there. Yeah. Wow, well, thank you for introducing us to this music of Irina Dubkova. Thank you for performing. And uh, Joseph Dangerfield, please say thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And we're lucky enough to be able to stay with music for a little while now here with our guest, Reni Lekwona, who is a faculty member here at the School of Music at the University of Iowa, wonderful pianist herself. And, um, so happy that you could be here, not playing piano tonight, but sharing the music of this wonderful Russian composer. So tell us about her. Well, <clears throat> I discovered Sofia Gubaidulina. I've been working on the word with my father, <laughs> who's Portuguese, and we've been working on it. Gubaidulina, Sofia. The first name is easier. And you know, she wrote some marvelous piano works, but they're from the 1960s, they're early works. And mm -hmm. so I got curious about her other works because in researching the piano works, I discovered that this is kind of a monumental composer, to say the least. Mm -hmm. And for example, she has a very deep interest in um, folk music, um, not just from Russia, but from the Caucasus and from um, you know, the whole region, that incredibly rich folk region, you know, you can just think a bit south. You can just think about Kodai and Bartok doing the same thing 70 years earlier, and there is the birth of ethnomusicology. So, so she has this deep love of folk music, and she founded the Astrea Ensemble, and but the other thing about her is that she's complete consummate master of Western art compositional techniques. And so um, I, I think without being hyperbolic, she's really something else. So for example, <laughs> I, I think one of the favorite pieces that I've heard of her is um, a concerto for violin and orchestra, and it's called Offertorium, and I thought, why? Where cometh this title, you know? And so. Um, I read about the title, and she said that it's like a union between two of the composers in music history, in all of music history, and let us not forget that she knows a lot about music, <laughs> that has touched her the most. And so from Bach, she takes a theme from the musical offering that's so beautiful, that contrapuntal great masterpiece of Bach. And then when we first hear the theme presented at the opening of the violin concerto, she sets it like Webern would. Yes, the father of the avant-garde. I mean, before 
WC, then there's Schoenberg, but then there's Webern. And Webern is really the go-to guy for people like Bulez and Stockhausen. And, and he's so beautiful. If you don't know Webern, that would be a nice side thing. But what he does is Klangfarben melody. Don't be afraid of the German. It just means sound color melody. And what it means is you, you, the theme is presented one note or maybe two and it's shared between several instruments in the orchestra and it creates one line which is Bach's theme but each instrument brings its special color to the note of the melody. It's, it's just amazing. So you see the unison between Bach or the, not unison, you see that wonderful meeting up of Bach and Fabern. That wow. was a long answer. I'm super sorry. Oh, dear. So no, no, no. That was so great. And, and I know that you have picked out selections for us. And you've yeah. Maybe we should listen to that because that, that is the opening of the concerto for violin and piano. It's the selection number one. And you'll hear the Klangfarben melody and you'll hear Bach's theme. It's about a minute long. the penultimate note of the theme. So Guba Dailina does not end the theme because you don't want to finish before you, you open another world. through the violin concerto. I think you have a couple more oh, snippets. Oh, yes, I have two more excerpts from the violin concerto. The next excerpt, we enter as the violin is finishing um, uh, a solo, but then the, the violin is exploring three notes this time. You remember at the end of this excerpt, the violin was exploring two notes, the tremolo, the last two notes, well, actually, the second to the last two notes of the theme, because remember, Guba Dailina doesn't give us the last note of the theme, so to keep the doors open for a new creation. And this time, the violin explores on three notes, and then suddenly the violin escapes and is joined by wonderful, I think it's marimba and vibraphone, and a very simple, almost folk-like setting. So then you see the, the folk-inspired um, folk composer. composer. So this is excerpt two. Those are the three notes.
And the third selection from the concerto is um, we again enter, I wanted to kind of get you into these things, so we enter with the violin doing a, a more aggressive solo, and then um, the piano and the harp and the percussion create a very menacing beginning, very low down, and, and in the very low registers. And then there's a large scale ascent, not like, you know, step by step, but a jagged, um, ascent, large-scale ascent over this. And I, some of the words that I wrote down when I was listening to it is like, it, it becomes frenetic conversation, frenetic dialogue. And here you hear maybe things that you would more commonly associate with, you know, the avant-garde of Western art music. And I couldn't help but think that she is a master of orchestration. And then I think of, you know, the tradition in Russia of Rimsky-Korsakov writing the book on orchestration. And so I think in some ways she's tying into her Russian lineage, lineage of being a master of orchestration. So see if you like the colors. So we can start with the violin solo. She's not an unknown composer. This is Gidon Kramer, one of the world's great violinists, performing this violin concerto. That's right. It's, it's, she, um, she dedicated this concerto to Gidon Kramer, who's really one of my favorite violinists ever. I mean, he, he simply is just so imaginative, and he can play Schumann as well as Brahms as well as, you know, Guba Dailina. And um, maybe now that you've heard some of her work, maybe I should tell you something about her, like a thumbnail sketch. So she's born in 19. 31, and she was born in Kazan, and that is the Tartar, Tatar, Tatar, <laughs> help me, Tatar, thank you, <laughs> thank you, Republic of um, the Soviet Union. And she actually first did the university in Kazan, and then she went on to Moscow. And she lived in Moscow. Now, this was a turbulent time, or we could say also um, an uneasy time for artists during the Soviet era because um, there were approved and less approved ways of composing. And being who she is, just like Dmitry Shostakovich and Prokofiev, she was getting into trouble quite frequently. And Dmitry Shostakovich, who did, I'm so happy to say, did 
protect her somewhat. And he said something, you know, he was on a committee judging her work, and he said she had been criticized, Gubadalina, and Shostakovich said, I want you to continue along your mistaken path. <laughs> so, you know, I think that's very encouraging. And so she um, was only able to leave the Soviet Union because one didn't have freedom of movement. It's hard for us to imagine that, but um, only in the 1980s was she allowed to go out of the country. And then um, now she lives in um, northern Germany near Hamburg. And um, she's incredibly uh, well-known. She is an honorary foreign member of the American Academy of Letters, which I, Arts and Letters, which I'm so proud that we, you know, recognized her. She's won lots and lots of um, awards. And more importantly, she writes these fantastic symphonic works, choral works, cello concertos, viola concertos, string quartets, and she writes pieces for unusual combinations of instruments, so like for um, cello, violin, and accordion. <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know a lot of classical accordion players, but I think it's just marvelous. Actually, one of my dear friends who was an, a professor here played the accordion, so there you, there you go. There you go. <laughs> anyway, um, do you have any? So we have, well, I think we have this other piece, this choral piece, which yeah. sort of reflects some of her orthodox mm -hmm. background. Mm -hmm. I brought, as my last two works that I wanted to show you, I wanted to bring something with voice. First of all, because it's religiously inspired. It's um, the Canticle of the Sun by St. Francis of Assisi. And it was originally written by St. Francis in 1224. I'm not quite sure how they know that year, but anyway, <laughs> that's what I read. And um, it's, it's um, it's a canticle, it's, it's a praise of the creation, but it's very interesting because St. Francis was an Orthodox, um, and not an Orthodox in that sense, I'm sorry, he was a Catholic, of course, a Western European Catholic, and Gubadalina is an Orthodox Christian. She converted in, um, 90, she had an experience, so it's really a huge part of her Welt um, and Shawank, of the way that she looks at her life is, is informed, the way she understands the world is informed by her Orthodox Christianity. But you know, I think St. Francis was getting very dangerously close to Gaia worship in this canticle <laughs> because he's talking about brother sun and sister moon and the air and you know, he's yeah. so close to that, that, that he sees nature. God in nature, yeah. Yeah. which of course is, I think, universal. Mm -hmm. um, so this, here are two excerpts, and I shall, oh, in the first one, there's an ecstatic introduction at the beginning of this canticle, and the percussion and the women's voice just take us up, you know, very ethereal, very heavenly, and then the men's voice are in a low chant, and then the and it's a chant, it's like a Gregorian chant, so just one note. And then the cello comes, and the cello has wide expressive ranges, very much as, as, a, as a foil against the, um, the men's held note. So this is excerpt number four.
magical, isn't it? It's just absolutely magical. It's the best darn church music I've heard in a while. Um, sorry, former Baptist. Um, um, and, you know, the last one thing I do want to say before I leave is that these performers are just stunning. So yeah. on the website, we will have information that acknowledges all these performers, because this is incredible, the Danish choir, but, you know, you're not going to remember that. So on the website, we will make sure that you know who performed these and who conducted them right. and things like right. that. Right, right, right. Well, uh, do, before we go into this last section, is there currently any kind of... Um, are there review panels for composers now in the Soviet Union, as far as you know, the sort of thing that happened before? I guess our other guests might know this, but sort of, you know, um, any kind of artistic censorship that you're aware of? I have never been to, the, to Russia now, and so I plead absolute ignorance on that point, and I, I have a feeling that Joseph would know that. I'm so sorry. No idea whatsoever. Do you know, Joe? Yeah, yeah, usually composers are not really censored, but yeah. Okay, so for the people listening here, the Union of Composers ha it has a sort of a review panel, but it's not the same sort of censorship situation that Shostakovich would have dealt with. So, um, well, let's hear this last uh, yes. little bit. And um, so the last one I chose because, well, I, I think it's beautiful, but the cello has, has skipping notes, and there's a lot of like rhythmic quivering. And, and, you know, as a former Baptist, I don't necessarily associate this with religious music, but it's that kind of ecstatic um, religious uh, sensation. Um, that's not the right word. Um, sensibility, like feeling, that, that sometimes one hears in the music of another one of my favorite Catholic composers, in this case, Olivier Messiaen, the famous French Composer. So for me, this is um, this is kind of mystic Christianity. And Guba Dailina is a very spiritual person, very interested in the things of the spirit. She has very um, <clears throat> profound aspirations for what art can do. This is this is not a Gebrauch uh, music or neoclassical in that aesthetic sense kind of composer, but more like. La Jeune France, a very serious-minded idea of what music can do, but the serious can take different shapes, and so this is a quivering, skipping kind of shape. Wonderful. So, so you have told me here and before that you think she is just perhaps the, the most amazing living composer. I, I think she's definitely one of the most um, 
she touched me, her music touched me. There's a kind of integrity and depth and dimensionality, multidimensionality. I, and what an imagination for sound, you know? I just think she's extraordinary. And then she's just this, you know, one can almost hear the, the, the I hate to say that, it's a projection, the goodness of the person, or at least the breadth of the person. This is a very cultivated person who knows folk music from all over a certain part of the world, and, and mm. someone who um, takes the care to look for the right sound in unorthodox, unconventional ways of producing sound. Mm -hmm. And so this is, dare I say it, not a careerist, mm -hmm. <laughs> something yeah. beyond. I think she will survive. Yeah. Well, thank you. This is Rennie Laquona. Thank you so much My for sharing pleasure. this with us. It was fantastic. Thank you. So we sort of stick with art here in this kind of broad overview of not only uh, women in terms of you know social and political and home life in uh, Russia and Eastern Europe, but also in the arts. And uh, please come on up. Um, we have some guests coming up with us now who will talk a little bit about women in classic literature, poetry, and film from Russia and Eastern Europe. And so I will just ask you to each uh, introduce yourselves. I'll start with you, Annie, because I know you well. Anna Barker, you're a professor here at the University of Iowa teaching Russian literature. So, uh, welcome. Um, yes, I came to Iowa City 20 years ago, and I, um, I have to make a disclosure. I'm married to Joan's cousin. Yeah, <laughs> true. <laughs> so we've known each other for years and years and years. Um, I came to the University of Iowa as a foreign exchange student 20 years ago, right after the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall, and um, I received three degrees from the University of Iowa, all of them in cinema and comparative literature. And um, I love teaching 19th century Russian and European literature here. Thank you. And you all know Yitka Sankova, and teaches Czech literature and language here. And please introduce yourself, Mackenzie. Hi, my name is Mackenzie Kane. This is my first year in Iowa City. I am a PhD student in the Cinema and Comparative Literature Department, also focusing on the novel in 19th century Britain and Russia. Thank you, thank you. Uh, hello, everyone. My name is uh, Frane Karabatic. I come from Croatia. Uh, currently working here at the University of Iowa teaching Croatian language and culture, but also a PhD candidate in Croatian culture back home in uh, Zagreb. Um, main field of interest, uh, literature, archaeology, and anthropology. Wonderful. Thank you. <clears throat> My name is Dmitry Petrov, and I'm a Russian-born. I, I came to the U.S. when I was in 93. Uh, uh, currently, I'm part-time majoring in or getting my BA in Russian because I want to uh, brush up on some of my uh, knowledge of my culture and hopefully, I'm not sure, maybe become a translator from English to Russian one day. So. Great. Thank you, Dmitry. Well, Yitka, let me turn first to you and, and tell us uh, a little bit about what, what we'll be listening to here. We're going to discuss literature, we're going to discuss film, and, and we have lots of great experts here. But um, what can you tell us to sort of get us centered as we start? Well, of course, uh, literature uh, in general is uh, simply the image or even the mirror of the society, and there is a mutual influence uh, uh, by the society to literature and literature to the society, and that's exactly the case of uh, the Czech literature, Czech and Slovak literature, uh, and we can find uh, probably both very, very positive, but also uh, negative uh, images, if we are talking about, about gender, through various phases of the development of 
Czech lands, Czechoslovakia, mm -hmm. or the Czech Republic, we can find very strong female authors, and uh, they actually appeared even before the country was established in uh, 1918, so it would be the strongest Czech author from, from 1830, and probably the first Czech feminist. Her name is Božena Němcová, and she's being quoted on all, all occasions when we are talking about uh, Czech literature written for women, by women, or for the general uh, public. Mm -hmm. As the country went uh, through various, uh, various stages of, of development, uh, it would be during uh, the era of the communism between 1948 and uh, 1989 when uh, women uh, wrote uh, literature which uh, supported the ideology of communism and, and question uh, to what degree it was just just uh, uh, you know under the political pressure or to what degree it was uh, uh, their personal uh, connection that uh, how they perceived the reality at the same time uh, during this era there were uh, uh, authors dissident authors who were persecuted for actually expressing their their opinions uh, generally speaking, uh, this would be mostly male authors uh, who would be known as, as uh, dissident authors like uh, Václav Havel or Emigre Milan Kundera. And women names actually were not so well known or so recognized, but there were definitely, definitely many, many of them uh, as well. Uh, so with the newly acquired freedom after uh, 1990, uh, uh, definitely this, this freedom of expression has been widely used uh, by, by both, uh, both uh, genders. And there uh, are many, many uh, female authors being published. Uh, at this point, we probably cannot talk about some kind of synthetic novel which would appear after 1990, but definitely there, there are very good promises. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's see, sure, maybe I'll go to you, Frane, um, and um, you can tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, Croatian literature, women in Croatian literature yeah. and film, or portrayals of women. Yeah, that's a topic that uh, becomes really interesting actually last 20 years. Uh, I must say briefly that uh, besides Berlin Wall and the collapse of uh, 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 communism. We had also a war in uh, Croatia. I mean, when Yugoslavia collapsed and uh, new countries were formed. So that was the period exactly 20 years ago, uh, 1991, uh, when the main task for most of most Croatian writers was actually to defend the country, to express Croatian identity and Croatian culture. So, uh, following that unwritten rule, uh, anyone uh, who endorsed different sentiments was uh, seen at that point as suspicious, anti-Croatian, pro-Serbian, or you can call it you nostalgic. So, in uh, mentioning that, it's really important uh, to say that those writers who didn't follow the rule were, were actually neglected, they were put aside, or they were even forced to leave the country. I'm mentioning this because uh, leaving the country, uh, there are five names, and all of them are uh, female names, uh, because they try to take a neutral stand 
to say that everyone is equal and to express just what they feel, to make literature close to uh, everyday people, you know, not intellect, just intellectual elite. So uh, their thoughts are seen as um, non-patriotic, anti-Croatian, pro-Serbian, and uh, there was a huge uh, thing that happened in 92 when five of them were accused of being a witch and raping Croatia. So the full title was Croatian Feminists uh, Raping Croatia. Uh, that was something that provoked so many things in uh, literature, in women's mind, uh, that at one point at the end, at the beginning actually of 20th, uh, 21st century, actually in 2000, uh, resulted in um, uh, forming a phenomenon, I would use that word, uh, called fuck. Saying that, you can associate that phenomenon with a certain English uh, word. Uh, that in creation, it, it actually stands for acronym Festival A Književnosti, or translated in English, Festival of A Literature. When people, after eight years after they've been accused of being a witch and raping Croatia, finally uh, get together and form the, uh, that group that will promote the ideas, what they try to do. The big irony of everything that after being accused of uh, being a witch and raping Croatia, those same people today are following the ideas that they expressed in, at the beginning of the 90s. And they call it just a mistake or they say that they don't remember that they did anything. Uh, as they associate themselves with the, um, that they are just a reader who remembers just the good and positive characters and everything that's bad, they just forget, that vanishes. So many of them are really, really, I mean two of them, of those five women are really important today in Croatian literature, and even though all five of them are living, living now abroad, no one, uh, lives, uh, none of them lives in Croatia, but one is really important, that's Slavenka Draculic. Uh, a female author who really often is associated as a feminist writer, even though she's not. That is the subject that appears in her novels, but I'm mentioning precisely her because she published in 84 a novel that uh, was something completely new in Central and Eastern Europe. And I will translate that uh, novel, I don't know even if it's translated in English or not, even though she's really uh, famous in uh, US, Great Britain and uh, other countries. But that novel that published, was published in 84, uh, I would say it's called um, Deadly, Deadly Sins of Feminism. That was something huge, huge uh, that in, uh, influenced on other writers in not only Croatia, but also like Central and Eastern Europe. Oh, Just briefly. No, thank you, thank you. Well, well, Annie, let me uh, turn to you and, and tell us something about what you think about Russian um, writing. Well, first of all, I wanted to say that I completely second the opinion that it's very hard to give a generic answer to how things changed. And um, the one thing that we discussed today and yesterday is the fact that there are very few women in leadership roles um, in certain countries of the former Soviet bloc. Um, and um, 
since I'm very happily lost in the past and in the 19th and 18th centuries, I wanted to remind everyone that Russia was ruled by four empresses, which was very, very unusual in the 18th century, Catherine I, Anna, Elizabeth, and Catherine II, throughout the 18th century. And as a matter of fact, it's absolutely bizarre that um, Russia had an academy of sciences before it had public schools and before it had public universities. And the first president of the Russian Academy of Sciences was a woman. She was a good buddy of Catherine the Great. She helped her with a military coup, and that was a nice way to reciprocate um, good favor. Um, and um, the fascinating thing is, she um, was a correspondent of Benjamin Franklin. Um, at the time when the American um, Academy of Sciences was being established, they met in London and they, uh, they, uh, they were very impressed with each other. Um, then also I wanted to say that we talked about the fact that um, perhaps Russian women lost some of their opportunities and gained some opportunities in the 20th century, late 20th century. And, um, as a student of 19th century Russian literature, I have to say that there's only one name that stands out, and that's Karolina Pavlova. Um, and um, she was absolutely savaged by, um, by the editors of Sovremenik, such as um, Belinsky and Nikrasov, who were great liberal thinkers who really felt that Russia should move into the modern world, but they could not tolerate a female author. Um, and sadly, she died in absolute obscurity and almost poverty in uh, Dresden. She had to leave Russia because um, she could not create there. Um, incidentally, to my Polish friends, her tutor was Adam Mickiewicz, so, so she, she, had, she had good tutelage. The 20th century, of course, brings about a flourishing of, um, of Russian female writers. Um, we talked about two of them just briefly today, Anna Akhmatova and Marina Tsvetaeva, who are huge names in Russian poetry, and both of them suffered tremendously because of Stalinist repressions. Um, they lost their husbands to the gulag, um, their children suffered because of their association with them, their sons and daughters were imprisoned because of the association with mothers um, who wrote absolutely dreadful petty bourgeois poetry that did not subscribe to the um, laws of socialist realism. Um, but later on, someone like Yuna Moritz, and um, two of my students read her poem yesterday. Um, she was a protege of Anna Akhmatova, and um, she still very happily writes today. Um, or someone like Bela Akhmadulina, who is a huge name in, in 20th century um, Russian poetry. Both Yuna Moritz and Bela Akhmadulina suffered because they dared to criticize the regime, but criticizing the regime in the 60s was very different from criticizing the regime in the 30s, which landed you in the gulag um, or an execution. So Russian women um, gave a tremendous, tremendous input into the development of 20th century um, Russian poetry. But the one thing that may connect me to Dmitri, actually, he, he made a wonderful collage that we saw yesterday. And one clip that he showed was from a movie, Interdevachka, The International Girl, or I don't know how it was translated into English. I remember reading that novel in some is that version, and that's something that we didn't talk about, the freedom to read anything, to say anything in the countries where you were forbidden to read um, Solzhenitsyn, where you could be jailed for reading certain authors, where you were forbidden to read Orwell. And I remember reading a some is that version of 1984 in the Soviet Union. So all that completely disappeared. Someone like Anna Akhmatova could not publish her most famous works in the Soviet Union, such as Requiem and the uh, Poem Without a Hero. They came out in the 80s after she died because they were so critical of the, of the 
Soviet regime. Um, and so it was fascinating that Mitri showed the clip from that movie because I remember reading it. Um, it was um, a carbon copy sewn together with thread and books were disseminated in the Soviet Union like that um, all the way up to um, 1989, which was a liberating moment for literature because you could read anything and you could say anything. Thank you, Henny. Oh, well, Dimitri, maybe we should go to you now. We've heard a little bit about what you presented yesterday. And your special area is film, as I understand it. <clears throat> Basically, um, I made a collage of 10 movies that start from the, you know, the 19th century and then go, or the early 20th century and go till the more, like, you know, the early 1990s. And it basically shows how um, women start off as being, like in the earliest movies, they're really uh, dedicated to the re revolutionary cause. And then <clears throat> they slowly evolve into, you know, wives of high-ranking military, and then they uh, become, you know, women of loose behavior. And that's more of a modern, exa uh, an example of a modern Russian woman, you know, so that kind of doesn't really have any values and just uh, does what's, what she feels mm -hmm. is best for her, so. Mm -hmm. So the movie basically shows how women, how they were in, from the beginning, in the beginning of 20th century to how they've changed up till now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the first one I showed was uh, The Captivating Star of Happiness, and that's the movie that shows the, the women that have the popular name at that time, White Hands, like they were really, you know, they were really skilled and they, but, and they were really committed to their husbands. And then I showed the movie called The 41st after that, and that one has a woman who's a soldier and she's a very skilled shooter and she falls in love with the with a man that's from the uh the white russian army but her uh dedication to the revolutionary cause you know mm -hmm. drives her to kill him so and then it just yeah and then some of the movies they show you know women that are overly tolerant like uh, i showed a clip from the thief uh, in which uh, she takes a lot of crap from her lover. Um, you know, he abuses her, he abuses her son, but uh, the movie takes place right after World War II, and so during that time, um, she, you know, women basically were, um, it was such a hard time that they would do whatever it takes to, I mean, they pretty much accept any, anything as long as they have a male figure or a, a husband figure in their life. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it just shows different sure. images, you know, sure, and sure. what roles they depict. Changes over time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and Mackenzie, what, you have studied this area a little bit too, Russian literature and mm -hmm. Russian film. And um, what are the what are the changes that you've seen over time in the way women are portrayed? Well, that's a really great question. I would say that <clears throat> being someone who focuses in the 19th century. We have these dominating figures of Dostoevsky and Tolstoy and Chekhov, and so the emergence of female poets in the 20th century, like Afmatova that Anna talked about, is really important. But in my comparative study, I just find it really interesting, specifically the differences between Great Britain and Russia. And we have in Great Britain this time where writing novels became a, a woman's profession in the late 18th century. And we have this heritage of writers like Anne Radcliffe, Jane Austen, the Bronte sisters, George Eliot, who write these really basic canonical texts that we, that we study. And so in my English classes, I see women writing women, at least in some respect. Certainly not balanced, and there's always questions of evening out the canon and getting rid of you know, or making more balance between dead white males. But in, in Russia, if, if I were to try and, and study, I mean, the canon is very locked. 
And so while we have these really fascinating portrayals of women, Tolstoy alone, Natasha Rostov, Anna Karenina, that are fascinating to study, they are men writing women. And so there's this lack and this difficulty in trying to understand, at least for me, the 19th century woman as she maybe saw herself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Yitka, uh, you mentioned uh, a famous novelist from the 1830s or so. Was, was she writing about the life of, was she writing about her life? Exactly, yeah. uh, and uh, somehow, actually, this was covered, this was hidden, because uh, her original language, or their native language, was German. It was still the era when Bohemia, Czech lands, were under Austrian control. So she was learning Czech as, as she went, and she, she was very stubborn. She decided that uh, actually writing and literary work that's the only thing she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So she uh, uh, actually had a very, very tough life, uh, having uh, three children, never, never accepted any other work, concentrating on writing novels and learning from other male authors. Mm -hmm. How to, how to do this. Her main work, which almost has, I would say, misleading name, as I, as I understand that today, it's called Grandmother in Czech Babička. Mm -hmm. Who would want to read that? <laughs> <laughs> it's presented to kids in the mm -hmm. second, third grade. It mm -hmm. took me a year to finish the book. <laughs> there. And uh, at the university, I learned from uh, actually my uh, professor of uh, literature of the 19th century that actually there are various other stories hidden, and these stories are about women. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a young woman, uh, she fell in love with a soldier who was supposed to be in service for Austrian army for seven years. Mm -hmm. She became pregnant, he left. What, what to do, how to, how to finish it. There was that older lady, that, that, that Babichka, who was taking care of uh, all the grandchildren, uh, at least seven of them. Mm -hmm. There was an employed mother who was working for the local, local uh, lord uh, at, the, at the castle. There were, there were um, actually children uh, uh, who, were, who were growing up, girls uh, in, their, in, her early, early, in their early teen years. Mm -hmm. And all this was mixed and portrayed together in that way that basically we got a picture of uh, yeah. life of women in, in that era. Well, I, again, not enough time to talk about everything we'd like to talk about, but thank you everyone for being with us tonight. And uh, please just stay here and we'll give our outgoing remarks. Uh, World Canvas is a production of international programs at the University of Iowa. Our production partners are UITV, the UI Pentecrest Museums, KRUI, and Information Technology Services. And you can look for this program on UITV, carried around the state, and KRUI, our local radio station here. Our next World Canvas, the last one in this year's season, will be May 6th, and the topic is Italian art and culture. So many thanks to my colleagues at International Programs. Uh, that's it for tonight. I'm Joan Kerr. Thank you for coming. Good night. <laughs>